You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Most of you know that uh, I teach a university course uh, a couple times a year uh, just as an adjunct professor. Um, and I've, I've never been big on formal titles. And so the first day of class, you know, as I introduced myself, I introduced myself as just Sam, you know, and you so say you can call me Sam. Um, what I've observed, however, is that no one in all my years of teaching has ever, no student, let me put it this way, no student has ever called me by my first name, Sam. Um, it's usually professor. Um, some will call me Dr. Dabratka. Most end up with Dr. Sam. Um, and that's, uh, that's fine. And, I, and I'm, I, again, I'm not really caught up in title, so I'm, whatever makes them feel comfortable. And that's really what it does come down to. It's what their comfort level was. Even though I was comfortable with them calling me more, or dressing more informally, they were much more comfortable dressing more, more formality in that relationship. And again, that's just the way it is, and I'm, I'm okay with that. What I've observed, interestingly enough, all, uh, over the years, is that people sometimes have an uncertainty as to how they should approach God. Is it formal? Is it informal? Um, and there's, there's reasons for that, and largely because the Bible portrays God differently. It's, uh, in, in Ezekiel, we're encouraged to approach God with confidence and boldness and certainty. And in the Old Testament, uh, and brought another place in the Old Testament, we are, we're told that we need to fear the Lord. And that, that conveys a completely different connotation and a different kind of relationship. Jesus then comes on the scene, and how does he tell us where to address God? Father. That's a completely different, some people I think take it too far, you know, daddy kind of stuff. I think that's a little too informal, but clearly there's a difference in the formality in how we approach God. There's, there's multiple postures in the Bible about how we should uh, approach God. Now, I don't want to portray God as being fickle. God never changes. Okay, so it's not God that's changing, it's us that changes. As our understanding of God, the things of God, our experience with God, that will change and that, that adjusts. God's mood, God, God is not kind of, you know, some of you ever had a boss where, you know, someone has to encounter the boss first and kind of get, or what's the mood for the day? Um, and then they let everyone else in the office know, all right, you know, she's in a great mood today, we're good. Or, you know, he's really cranky, watch out, avoid, you know. So that's not, that's not at all what I'm wanting to convey. God never changes. Um, his posture towards us is always the same. It's how we approach him is what is interesting. One of those approaches that we're going to take a little bit more time to look at uh, today is this approach of humility. Um, specifically, um, we've been looking at this passage from Micah chapter 6. He, God, has shown you what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? In other words, what does God want? In the scheme of things, what is it that God wants? And, and, he, and, and Micah answers that, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this is week three in that series where we've taken each one of those. And two weeks ago, we looked at uh, this, what it means to act justly. And I made the statement there that as a Christ follower, you don't have the option to not care about justice. 
we get bogged down in the political solutions, okay? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not advocating for any position or any posture. I'm just saying, broadly speaking, when there's injustice, you need to be concerned. You need to be aware of that, and you need to, to have a sense of that. To act justly means that we actually have to do something. It has an active connotation to it. In that context, we talk about the fact that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. So that's what it means to act justly. Last week, we took some time and looked at this idea of what it means to love mercy. And we, we, we observe that in the Old Testament, when we talk about mercy, it's by and large in the context of God withholding his judgment from us. God have mercy on me. You see in the Psalms, David talks extensively about God have mercy on me. It deals with God's judgment. When we get to the New Testament, that idea of mercy changes significantly. Um, Particularly in the book of Matthew, we see time after time after time where an individual in need calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on me. So there, instead of having this idea of withholding judgment, in the New Testament with Jesus, it's much more about Jesus, do something about my problem. Help me, solve this for me, heal me, um, whatever the situation was. So essentially to love mercy then means that we're willing and we make conscious decisions to help people in times of need. So as Christ followers, we're, just as we're called to act justly, just as we're called to love mercy, we're also called, and this is the last portion of, of that verse, we're called to walk humbly with God. Now there's a consistency in Scripture about what God actually wants from us. In Micah 6, as I mentioned here in week one, we see this idea of act justly, love mercy. Those have to do with our relationship with one another. So it's this horizontal relational dynamic. This, today we're going to look at this idea of walking humbly with God. That's much more of this relational dynamic. Okay, so there's that idea. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking to a religious leader, and, and they say, well, what does God want? Uh, what does it mean to, uh, to, to love God? And the response was to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Again, the idea of loving God. And then the second part of that was love your neighbor as yourself. So again, we had this, I can refer to as perpendicular here, this relationship with God, and then we have the horizontal relationship with one another. And then t- 10 commandments. Four of the commandments deal with our relationship with God, and six of the commandments deal with our relationship with one another. There's a common theme here in scripture, isn't there? God is concerned about two things, how we relate to him and how we relate with one another. So I think a case, a very strong case we made that this idea of growing in your faith is, can be boiled down to two things. Are you growing in love for God? And are you growing in love for other people? If you can say, I'm doing those, I think you're on the right path. I think you're doing well. So act justly and love mercy encourages us to do something for others. This idea of walking humbly with your God is not so much about action as it is about a lifestyle in which we live in consistent communion and constant relationship with God. 
in Enoch, I'm sorry, in Genesis uh, chapter 5, we read of Enoch. Um, it says he lived 65 years, or when he lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. He lived a total of 365 years. And further on in Genesis, we actually read about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. The idea here is that we walk with God. We don't walk behind him. We don't walk in front of him. We walk with him. There's this side, there's this relational dynamic that's at play here. So for the next few minutes, let's talk about what does it mean to walk humbly with God. So I think when we walk humbly with God, it means that we replace our old identity with his new identity. Paul spent an awful lot of time in his letters talking about our identity in Christ. An awful lot. If you read his letters, his epistles, there's an awful lot of conversation about what it means to be in Christ and what that looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's a different person. In Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then further on in Galatians, he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all all one in Christ Jesus. It's our identity. It's who, how we need to think about ourselves. Our faith in Christ does not work if it's merely an add-on to our life. If it's simply an add-on to everything else going on, it doesn't work. We can't, if we, sometimes we look at ourselves, well, I'm an American first, you know, then I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a businessman, and I'm also a Christian. That's not what Paul, that's not what scripture, that's what God is calling us to. I believe it should be, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a businesswoman. But the central identity is in Christ. Last week I talked to you about, uh, I told you about Catherine, uh, a woman in Rwanda I met with whose life was changed just transformed because the local church in her village decided to get involved um, and to help her um, and, they, and her and others in the village who were HIV positive, and most of these were widows. Um, I didn't tell you why I was in Rwanda. Uh, some of you, if you're familiar with uh, international history or that, part, or that particular time, in 1994, um, there was a, a genocide that happened in that country. So at that time, 1994, there were 7 million people, and that's a small country, not very big, so 7 million people, Within a 100-day period, one million people were killed. One in seven were killed. Um, it, was a, it was a terrible... It, 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 to this day, they're still dealing with repercussions of that. It just devastated the country financially, morally, every way possible. It was just terrible. And our church was there working with other pastors there in the, lo- in the local context, trying to find out how we can help revive um, 
people. Um, and large, we are, our, our involvement was large in the area of microfinance opportunities. And so we're investigating how we could, it's amazing what can happen, uh, just some amazing stories. But the tragedy was just, it was just horrific. So here's the thing. At the time of the genocide, estimates were that 60 to 70% of the population was churched. Now, I didn't say that they were Christians. 60 to 70% of the population was in church on Sunday morning. Think about for a second. That means that there were tens of thousands of people who were in church on Sunday morning and went home and killed their neighbor that afternoon. How does that happen? Over the years, missiologists have been studying this, trying to understand what went on, what caused this to happen, and and how could this happen. Here's what they discovered. For the majority of Rwandans, their identity, their Christian identity, never exceeded their tribal identity. They still thought of themselves as Hutus and Tutsis. And so that identity superseded anything else. Their Christian identity never rose above that. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Scripture. You can't be thinking like this anymore. You can't be thinking about your national identities, your tribal identities, your, form, your family identities. You are in Christ now. That's how you need to think about yourself. You are in Christ. We now have a heavenly kingdom identity, and that needs to be your identity moving forward. When we put our hope and faith in Christ, everything is supposed to change. When we walk humbly with God, our identity is in Jesus Christ. So another thought, when we walk humbly with God, we replace our way with a desire we replace our way, I'm sorry, we replace our way with a desire to do things God's way. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the story of the serpent coming to Eve and that whole temptation story. Most of you may be familiar with that. And he tempts her by saying, hey, you know, you can't, you know, that's too bad that you guys can't eat the fruit that's the food that's here in the garden. And he says, oh, we can eat anything we want except for that one. Uh, Just one tree. Everything else we're good. Just that one tree we can eat. Otherwise we'll die. And Satan, then the the serpent responds and says, well, no, you're not going to die. In verse 5, he says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I I, I find it just fascinating that one verse there, she saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was helps you be more wise and give gain help you gain wisdom. Basically, she ate it because she wanted to. There's nothing more than that. We, she, just, she wanted to eat it. It was desirable, and she made the decision to do that. That is the epitome of original sin, wanting to live life on our terms instead of God's terms. We don't want anyone telling us what to do or how to live. I've observed that we can pretty much justify just about any decision we want to make if that's what we're inclined to do. 
You know, I've said this before that if you find yourself asking the question, if you're trying to make a decision and you find yourself asking the question, what's wrong with, and finish it however you want to, you're probably asking the wrong question. (laughs) Most of the time you're asking the wrong question. And it'll almost always be a mistake. Instead of asking what's wrong with this, we should be asking what's right with this. Will this decision honor God? Will this decision honor the things of God? Walking humbly with God means that we do our best to live life in a manner that honors him. Walking humbly with God also means that we replace self-confident pride with trust that makes way for God's grace. James 4 says that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In 1 Peter, we read that um, Peter's telling us to clothe clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Listen to this. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's almighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That he may lift you up in due time. Think about that for a moment. I'm reminded, within that idea, I'm reminded of the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 14, where he's at this gathering, a dinner feast, and he's observing people kind of posturing for it to be at the head of the table. They want the places of honor. And so he tells the story. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. (coughs) Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love the message in there. Similarly, in the Old Testament, we read about David when he'd been called by God. He had been chosen as the next king of Israel. God actually, God made the choice and told Samuel to go and anoint him. So he had God's calling. He had Samuel's anointing. It was official. And instead of becoming king, he actually is on the run for his life for about almost the next seven years hiding out in caves, running. And if anyone had the right to exert his rightful place, it was David. David could have stood up and said, no, no, no. Hey, it's my turn now. You need to step aside. He could have exerted that posture, but he didn't. In fact, two different times he had the opportunity to kill Saul. And what did he do? He chose not to touch him. In fact, he, I, I love his words there. He said, I won't do anything. I will not touch him because he is the Lord's anointed. But David was also anointed. So what's, so again there, this idea that we just read about in, um, um, where was it? In Peter about humble yourselves so that God, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So that there's gods involved when, and the whole idea of the dinner feast and don't position yourself for honor, let that happen naturally. And, and the, the example of David, who when he had the opportunity, had the right, he didn't 
position himself to take advantage of that. I read those, and I, as I think about those, the lessons to be learned there are these, that when someone else is given the job promotion you deserve, you don't quit in a fit of anger. When someone else takes credit for your work, you don't go on a smear campaign in order to get the credit yourself. When you are wronged, you don't protest. You don't defend yourself. Why? Because ultimately, it's a matter of trust in God. I'm not suggesting you become a doormat, that everyone just runs all over you and everyone walks over you. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that before you embark on a mission to reestablish your rights, you need to take a look at your motivation and make sure that your primary motivation is not pride. If that's your motivation, Scripture is very clear. Step back. Let God work this out on your behalf. When we attempt to correct the wrong against us, we may actually be preventing God from lifting us up in due time. Think about that. When we're trying to actually correct the wrong, a legitimate wrong that's against us, we may actually be preventing God from doing something entirely different that he wants to do. And my experience has been those are always better than what I had planned. Um, And so, again, I'm not suggesting that we be doormats. I'm suggesting that before you exert yourself, before you you insert yourself in a situation, check your motives and make sure that it's, it's not an issue of pride that's at work here. So lastly, when we talk about walking humbly with God, we replace it's all about me with it's all about God. When looking at this topic of motivation, um, most studies reveal that many, if not most, acts of service are self-serving. So even though I'm serving others, I'm getting something back. For some people, uh, some people serve others because they want the attention. You see this especially with politicians. It's good press. What, you know, why do you think the, the media is there to take pictures? Because it's good they're, they're wanting to convey an image. And, the, and that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes you want people to know that because that's what you're trying to do. So, but internally, if that's your motivation, it's because you want to get noticed and you want people to think well of you. I think most of us would understand and agree that's not the proper motivation to be doing that. That's not true service and tr- it's not true humility. Many of us, though, do it because it gives us a good feeling. There is an internal reward what happens when we serve other people. Um, I've heard said that if you're feeling depressed or discouraged, the best thing to do is go do something for someone else. And it changes your perspective and it changes your mood. So does that mean that's wrong if you're doing it because it it makes you feel better? No. It's always right to do right. (laughs) You know, so so I'm not I'm not it's not I'm not saying you should stop from serving others. But we need to be conscious that as Christ followers, our words and actions should always point others toward Jesus. So even if I'm serving others and I'm, I'm feeling really good about it because I feel like I'm contributing and doing something well, I need to make sure that Jesus is the one that's getting the credit and we're pointing others towards Jesus. 
If someone, I, I've heard this one interview I saw that I just thought was genius. Um, well, there's two different ones. I've heard, I've seen both. One is that, well, why are you doing this? Well, because, because I'm a Christian and this is, and that's, that's yeah, you know, it just, it, it, it didn't work well. The best response I've heard is why are you doing this? Because, because I made a decision to follow Jesus and this is the kind of thing Jesus would do. So this is what I want to do. See the difference? The difference is not because it's not on me. I'm a Christian and I'm good and I'm thing. It's much more about this is what Jesus would do. And I want to be like Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. Completely different perspective. But when we walk humbly with God, it means that we learn it's not about me. It's not about us. It needs to be about him. It needs to be about Jesus. So what does God want from us? He wants us to act justly. He wants us to take initiative and that when we see injustice, we do something about it. Whether that's local or whatever, whatever you feel led by the Holy Spirit to do. God wants us to love mercy. When we see a need, we should respond and resolve that. And God wants us to walk humbly with your God. So this has been a series on relationships talking about relationships with God and relationships with other people. Now, I'd be negligent, you know, at this point in time, you know, as I get, we come to the end of this, is if I didn't give the opportunity or invite you to maybe recommit your life to the Lord or recommit your life to relationships with other people. Or perhaps for some, there might be, this is something for you for the first time. This idea of, of wanting to put your life in God's hands and you're wanting to follow him and do the things that he's calling you to do and to be obedient to him. So I'm going to pray here in just a second. My, my invitation to you is that as I pray, that you make that a personal decision on your part and that you also recommit your life uh, to what maybe God is speaking to you or maybe you invite him into your life and that you make that decision to follow him for the very first time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a challenging series about uh, what, it, what you expect from us. And uh, clearly, our salvation is not hinged upon our works. But Father, when we have accepted that gift of grace, when we have put our lives in your hand, when you have become, uh, when our identity becomes uh, in Jesus Christ, it should cause us to change. It should cause us to think differently, to behave differently. And so, Father, I, my prayer this morning is for those who might be here who maybe have lost sight of some of that in their life, or maybe they've forgotten, or maybe in the circumstances of life it's just gotten buried. I pray, Father, that if your Holy Spirit is um, bringing some of this to light, is bringing things to mind, that they would, in fact, recommit themselves to your purposes in their life. Um, Lord, that they would sense that freedom, that they would sense that release uh, from you. And Father, if there's anyone here who may not have given their life to you um, at all at any point in time, but Lord, they want to do that today. Lord, may they invite you into their life right now. May they surrender their life and commit themselves to follow you for the remaining days, I pray.
Lord, I'm convinced that following you is the most exciting adventure life has to offer. That when we surrender ourselves to you and allow you to work in us and through us, we allow you to do things that we never would have planned or conceived on our own. Father, what a rewarding, what an honoring life and existence it is. Father, may we, the people of Grace Covenant Statesville, be that kind of people who live not for ourselves, but who live for you, who live not for ourselves, but live for others, who desire to honor you in all that we say and do, who desire to be in good relationship with others and to encourage one another as we walk this journey of faith. So, Father, we commit ourselves to your purposes. We commit ourselves to your ends this day. Uh, Father, may this be a day for some of us that we look back on and say this was a day when things changed. This was the day that uh, I made a commitment or I made a recommitment and repositioned my life according to God's plan for me. Lord, we do this in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.